Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We're walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the aftermath of the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. It could happen again unless someone caves on the border wall. Trump will get the wall. They may call it barrier, whatever. He will get the wall and the funding. But what is the best solution? We have to invest in things other than a wall. And what about the group of migrant miners moving to Philadelphia? The question becomes, how can we do it? How can we help these thousands of kids? We dig in. She's shaking things up at the Philadelphia Public Defender's Office. Some people don't have to go to jail if we can address some of their issues on the front end. The historic appointees reforms and the impact they're already making. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the U.S. southern border. It's been the center of weeks of debate and the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. It's stolen headlines as politicians jockey for position over funding for a border wall. America waits, hoping their temporary truce ends in compromise. I hope that we can reach a deal, but one way or the other, we're going to start securing the border. That Senate Republican leader Lindsey Graham, so far there's no deal, so could another shutdown be imminent in the coming days? Unless Congress takes action. Disagreement in policy should never be a reason to shut down government. really shouldn't, especially again. But what is going on at the border? What is needed to secure it? And how do we deal with the thousands of migrants looking for a way in? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Stephen Lauren. He is Senior Director of Legal Services and Immigration Policy at the Nationality Services Center. We also have Ricky Palladino. He's an attorney and a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association Philadelphia chapter, where he serves as the liaison to ICE. And finally on the phone, we have Raynard Jackson. He's a columnist who is a staunch Republican and Trump supporter. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks so much for having us. Well, you know, 800,000 federal workers were the political pawn in this border wall fight, and this is still a mess. Steve, you recently spent some time at the border. What in the world's going on down there? Yeah, I was just at the border early December, and when I was there, I was helping to speak to the migrants who were there who were seeking asylum, who were looking for a way to come to the United States and ask for asylum because they were fleeing terrible persecution. So there was people in the different centers that we've heard about in the news recently. There was the Benito Juarez sports complex where they were outside in sort of the muddy fields. There were people being moved to large shelters. We're talking about thousands of folks sleeping in tents, sleeping in the rainy season in the cold. Folks who want an opportunity simply to apply for asylum, to actually do the legal process of going, presenting themselves to the mm. Border Patrol Agency and saying we, we are afraid to go back to our countries, our lives are in danger, and have an opportunity to present that case. So it is, it definitely had, there is definitely a humanitarian crisis there. Uh, absolutely. And, and what is difficult is I spoke to people from lots of different countries. So definitely yeah. the Central American countries we've been hearing about, but also people fleeing from different parts of Mexico, people from Cameroon, folks from different countries who are seeking ways to come in, who are being told to wait outside in Mexico for weeks, months, possibly, without really recourse to shelter, a lot of good shelter and opportunities for food and so on. And so they're being denied this opportunity to apply and come in and have their cases heard. Yeah. And what they're fleeing, and this is often when we talk about these issues in the news, what they're fleeing is real persecution. You talk about the Northern Triangle countries, folks who have had family members killed, who have been threatened, yeah. who are in really difficult situations in countries and governments that cannot help them. And we'll, and we'll come back to that in just a second. But, Ricky, I mean— People still, these are folks who want to get in here legally, but there's a lot of people crossing illegally too, right? Sure, of course. Well, people are just desperate to come into the United States however they can. Uh, they want their cases for political asylum heard from, from all over the world. So if they can get in illegally, ultimately they'll find a way to apply for asylum because even if they come in illegally, they can apply for asylum within their first year of being in the United States. Um, but I don't think people care whether they come are caught or not caught as long as they have an opportunity to have their case heard. I, I litigated a case in front of the Philadelphia Immigration Court earlier this week for a gentleman from Cameroon, as Steve mentioned, who was granted political asylum. And that's how he came. He got a, a visa in Nigeria to go to Mexico and then ultimately made it to our border. So people from all over the world are fleeing 
terrible persecution and really want to come here for a chance of, of, of a normal life. And, you know, the question I get often asked from people is that, that aren't familiar with immigration is why are they coming here? And the stat that I've been telling people, which I think is very telling, is that the Wall Street Journal has reported for the country of El Salvador that the gangs in El Salvador are literally the largest employer in the country. Wow. And more employees than even the, the government themselves. So it's a terrible humanitarian situation. So whether they're coming illegal or getting caught by immigration, they just yeah. want a chance. And I know, Raynard, you've written on this issue of immigration. What are your thoughts? I mean, people coming here are fleeing all from countries all over the world and want to come here. Oh, Cherry, come on. We have people trying to flee Chicago for fear of their lives, and no one's paying a damn bit of attention to them. Number one. Number two, here's the fascinating thing that you never see discussed in the media. By international convention through the U.N., if you are seeking asylum in anywhere in the world, you must, emphasis on must, you must accept asylum from the first country that's a member of the U.N. that offers it to you. So when these guys from Central America specifically are coming through uh, Mexico, they have extended asylum to every illegal cross into Mexico. So when they get to the U.S., their application is automatic grounds for denial simply because they turn down asylum in Mexico because ultimately their goal is to get to the U.S. And so I'm hoping that when they get their hearing in front of a, a, a immigration attorney, they turn them down prima facie because that's what the international law says. So you're saying that people shouldn't be able to come to America? Based on international law, no. And so what do you guys have to say in response to that? So so the position is the, the Trump administration has said that they would like that to be the law. It is mm-hmm. not the correct statement of the it law. It is the law. The Trump administration has stated that what they would like is to have an agreement with Mexico that Mexico, that people who arrive there have to apply for status there first. Mexico provides no, opportunities. Mexico that's provides opportunities for folks to apply for asylum. Asylum application rates throughout Latin America are up at record highs. The crisis in the Central American countries is real, and people are going to different countries, not just the United States. There are record highs in all the neighboring countries and into South America as well. So people are applying where they're finding some opportunity. There are some people that have family here. And they'd like to be reunited with family, and they're going to seek asylum in the U.S. That's not so, our issue. I, I mean, they are in violation of the law, and so they don't qualify and, for and, asylum based on international convention. But the bottom line is we, have, we haven't even gotten to a chance with all these people waiting at the border. We haven't even – we can't even decide their cases because they – a lot of them are still waiting in line. So the big issue that folks have been yelling about and why we shut down the government was for a wall. So will a wall work? No, absolutely not. I mean, people are still going to want to come to the United States because the United States is the beacon of freedom. People don't want to end up in Mexico because there's individuals from Mexico that are fleeing Mexico in record numbers to try to seek asylum in the United States. So the United States will always be um, the beacon of hope for people in the world. They will continue to come here. And even if there's a wall... They're going to try to go through a process to, to obtain political asylum in the United States um, because they they desperately don't want to return to the persecution that they're going to face in, in their country. So, no, a wall won't stop and, and individuals will be creative with ways to try to enter the United States because it really is a matter of life and death for them. Yeah. And so, Reynard, I mean, this this has been the president. You are an avid Trump supporter and he says a wall will work. What are your thoughts on this? A lock on your door, Cherry, at home will not stop a burglar from entering your house if he's that dedicated to breaking into your house. A password on your uh, Internet account will not prevent people from hacking into it. It makes it a lot more difficult. It is not an absolute problem-solving mechanism to put the wall up, but it makes it a lot more difficult. And I find it ironic, guys, that everyone on the Democratic side who opposes the wall have a wall. Mark Zuckerberg has a wall around his house in Hawaii and in California. Nancy Pelosi has a wall. Oprah Winfrey has a wall. So if it's good enough for them, isn't it good enough for our country? Yeah, and so we do need some kind of security. What I mean, you you just left the area, Stephen. So what what do you think? What have you heard and what have you seen that would that would work here? So the national intelligence agencies just testified this week that there is that there's no crisis, security crisis at the border. Sort of the position of the administration is this terrible crisis. We need this wall. 
people with the information are saying, no, this is not a crisis. That's the not true, people Stephen, we're talking about true. are migrants that are that's seeking to enter lawfully. Right. So so often and the conversation so often the conversation becomes there are people coming in illegally. We're talking about people applying for asylum who are lining up and waiting for weeks, months to do this lawfully. The law allows for them to apply for asylum and to have an adjudication, have a fair process mm-hmm. to actually p- present their case. And many of them lose. They may not may not win their cases or they might win. And so we're asking for opportunities for them. So right now, the uh, Board of Protection is denying them the opportunity to even ask for asylum against International law against the law, U.S. statutes that we've signed that we should provide a meaningful process for them to uh, apply for asylum. Okay, Stephen, can you answer to me the question about you are required by uh, U.N. Uh, uh, mandate that if Mexico, in this case, offers you asylum, you must take it at the first country that offers it to you. Therefore, the people you're talking about are not even eligible for asylum. If you've firmly resettled and you have permanent status, an offer of permanent status, so if they have permanent status in Mexico, that is an issue for their asylum case in the U.S. The majority don't. They, yeah. Mexico's not saying, hey, you entered our country, here's asylum. It doesn't work that way. They have an opportunity sometimes to apply, and some folks are. Many of the people that came in the caravans that we heard about have stayed in Mexico, have applied but for Steve, asylum, are working there now. By, yeah. by UN and, and, and we're going to move if, on. And I, we, we don't want to belabor this point because we have a lot of issues to cover. And so I want to leave that the issue of asylum in Mexico, because at the end of the day, we have thousands and thousands of people waiting at our border. So what do we need, Ricky, for security here? Well, I think when you talk about security, the, the question ultimately becomes, how does the United States invest our money to become safer? And uh, my position has been, and it, and it continues to be, that investing in a border wall is not going to make us safer. Now, there's things that we can do mm. that Republicans and Democrats would agree on that can make us safer. For example, the Boston bombers were immigrants in the United States uh, from the Dagestan region um, who came into the United States with lawful visas. They came here. They, they they caused an incredible amount of harm to the United States. So we should invest our money into resources, into training our officers, into encounter intelligence to stop those individuals who want to do nothing but harm in the United States from coming here. The, by and large, the individuals that are coming from the northern triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras are simply fleeing persecution and trying to get a better life. So mm-hmm. in my position, to make ourselves safer, we have to invest in things other than a wall, uh, mostly counterintelligence um, that will keep the wrong people out of the United States. Yeah. And so what about that? I mean, Raynar, what about sort of dealing with the root cause instead of just dealing with the symptom, which is the people lined up at the border? Why not uh, deal with the whole root cause of of the gangs and, and, and try to deal with this? Let me tell you something. I live in northern Virginia, a suburb of D.C., MS-13 is running rampant in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. You have 15-year-olds. I mean, literally, they are ripping hearts out of their, their fellow teenagers. I mean, literally, cutting their hearts and their, in, their guts out because they didn't want to join the gang. So don't tell me these illegals coming over here are all Sunday school choir members. They're not. They're criminals, and they're being pimped and used by the coyotes, and these little young girls are being raped coming over here, and they they get uh, sold into bondage and slavery when they get over here because they but, can't. But you know, but I mean, but I but I have met a number of people seeking asylum, and, the, and these people are not gang members, and they they you know weren't. Those are the ones the media wants to highlight. Well, I can tell you, but that is I not, can tell you, Raynard, as an immigration lawyer, I meet good people deal. all the time. There's there's certainly yeah. some bad apples, and you know what? We have to keep those people out. But by and large, there's tons of good people that I have the, uh, the great opportunity to meet every day. And so that's a good transition okay, point because I want to talk about the fact that Philadelphia is about to be home to uh, potentially dozens of unaccompanied minors who cross the border. And I want to talk about kids a little bit. Are they a little bit are they different? Because There's kids who have done this track. They're teenagers, preteens, and they're crossing the border and trying to get asylum as well. Right. So there was a great headline a few years ago that said children don't. Uh, migrate. They flee. Right? We're talking about children who aren't saying, hey, I want to go work someplace and that's why I'm leaving a country. I'm fleeing and taking a risky journey all the way to the United States because I'm in real danger. Right? The idea is like you're in a building, it's burning, you're going to jump out. That's a dangerous jump. Hopefully you're going to find a safe landing and have an opportunity, but that building's on fire. It's safer for you to take that risk. And that's what children are doing. They're taking that risk to say, hey, my, I, I have no future where I was at. 
nobody's protecting me, neither my family perhaps, definitely not the government, for lots of different reasons, from corruption to the infiltration of the gangs and so on. And they're looking for an opportunity. And the United States has a process by which they might give them that opportunity. And they're going to have proceedings. They're going to have hearings. They're going to present their cases. And so they're, they're asking for that opportunity and for that help. And I think the question becomes, and we often don't ask this, is what can we do to help those folks? I think generally the U.S. population as a whole wants to help. They hear one story of a person, and the U.S. would be extremely generous and say we're going to help this one person. And once those numbers get higher, it becomes a more difficult question how to do it. But that should be the question. How can we do it? How can we help these thousands yeah. of kids whose lives are truly in danger? And, and it seems like the kids actually end up in a better situation just because, I mean, kids are treated differently. They, they are. So when kids enter the United States, they're treated differently than adults because the immigration service can only detain them for a maximum period of 20 days. And then after 20 days, they have to release them to uh, Health and Human Services. And part of Health and Human Services is an organization called the Office of Refugee Resettlement mm. who uh, gets involved in helping helps to find them housing. And you did a story recently about the individuals that are coming to Philadelphia to find housing. So they are treated different after they enter. Let me tell you where they're not treated different. Outside the United States, waiting in Mexico to come into the United States, they're treated like everyone else. So there could be a 13-year-old boy or girl who's alone, traveled many miles to come to the United States to seek asylum, who's waiting in a line for weeks, maybe even months, to try to get into the United States. And that's an urgent humanitarian crisis that we need to deal with, where the United States government needs to get involved and organize the system or the lack of a system for individuals that are waiting in Mexico to try to come into the United States, especially as it relates to unaccompanied minors. And the thing is, I'm thinking I just did a whole show last week on human trafficking, and I'm thinking about a 13-year-old standing at the border waiting in line is a perfect target for traffickers. So, yes. um, you know, Reynard, I mean, do you Republicans view uh, kids differently when they cross the border than the adults? No, I don't. And I'm just stunned that I'm the only one on this interview talking about there are 40% of all black babies are living under the poverty line. They don't get all this personalized treatment. They don't get field trips every week. They don't get uh, all this first-class medical treatment and a free apartment and free education to the extent that these illegal. Our first obligation is to take care of our own citizens, and I'm just dumbfounded that we're spending all this time talking about those in the country illegally, number one. Number two, do you, you all do understand that these little babies are being pimped and pawned by these adults to get into the country. And a lot of these kids are, again, when they go to the Catholic Charities or these uh, refugee houses, do you know it costs $70,000 per American citizen for each illegal in the country? 70000 per. You know how much money that is? And so there's a profit motive behind all this stuff. Yeah. It has nothing to do with these folks caring for these little kids. It's all about making money. And I will say this, uh, you know, because when I did the story about Vision Quest opening up the Grace Dixie, the Grace Dixie Center in North Philadelphia, the biggest complaint I got from Philadelphians mm-hmm. was, look, you know, this this place is getting up to three point six million dollars a year to care for these kids. They, they had uh, Xboxes in there and it's only 60 kids standing there. They get clothes, everything. They get to go to school. They have language services, counselors. What about the kids in North Philly? That was the, the, the big question. And I mm-hmm. have to th- that's a perfect transition. Christ at the border. It's a mess. And it's an expensive mess. Um, some say, you know, I've seen numbers at $1.8 billion annually in the refugee uh, program and up to um, $54 billion when you're talking about undocumented immigrants. So it makes fiscal sense to kind of fix this. American taxpayers are spending their money for this. And they don't. What benefit do Americans get? When we talk about uh, different programs, whether the refugee program, there's you know the facts that folks don't know. Refugees, when they come to the U.S., they have to pay back their own airfare to get here. That's part of the program. They're they're going to start working. Overall, immigration to the United States is an economic benefit to the United States. Every study and. That is overall a benefit. Are there moments of, of the, that there's more work that needs to be done and the transitions and so on? Yes. But I think overall you see that immigrants are starting more businesses, are more entrepreneurial than, than U.S.-born uh, Americans. They're doing that. Their crime rate is lower amongst immigrant population versus the U.S. It's a positive contribution overall to the country. And that's what the focus should be. The overall, it's going to benefit the country to have immigrants uh, reinvigorating communities that have lost jobs and so on. 
uh, we need population for social security purposes and so on as uh, you know in the future to have workers who are paying into the system overall it's a benefit are there challenges in, in the implementation and that transition to that? Yes, and they need to be addressed. There's absolutely major poverty issues and lack of resources for people in Philadelphia and other parts of the country that need to be addressed, but it doesn't have to be on the back of people fleeing persecution, uh, other people who are also just struggling to make a better life. These are courageous people whose lives were in danger, who are saying, I'm going to take risks to make my life better and make my life better for my kids. Well, and there are people who can be, who can be in solidarity these are folks that could have solidarity with other people in the same struggle and say, look, we're in the same thing. We're fighting. Yeah. You know, we've been other forces, outside forces have created these situations in our countries or creating these different income gap in our own country here in the U.S. And this is where the coalition should be built. And, and I got to ask this question because a lot of our listeners are saying, well, why does America mm-hmm. have to be the place where all these folks get to come? I mean, why do we have to be the ones that saves all the people? Well, first and foremost, you have to recognize where we're geographically located. I mean, these people are fleeing persecution. For the most part, they lack uh, significant funds to get on an airplane and fly to another country. So we're really the only place that they can. We're really the only place that they can go to. We're really the only place that they can go to. And yes, it is expensive, but I want to give you a quote from Benjamin Franklin, since we're sitting here in the city of Philadelphia, which is, a Mm. fool knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. The value of this is that this is an urgent humanitarian situation. We can't just turn our back on these individuals. We're not turning our back. We didn't turn our back on the Iraqis and what was going on in Afghanistan because it was an urgent humanitarian situation that did affect us also collaterally. And this is no different than that. Yeah, any response to that, Raynara? Because you were saying you were saying wow. something. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you claim they don't have money to get on a plane, but they got money to pay fifteen thousand dollars for a coyote. That, number one, number two. I would ask you, you know, Steve and, 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 and Ricky, this: Have you all ever, and, and Cherry, have you ever had on your show any family member of a person who's been had a family member killed by illegal, whether through gangs, whether through DUI? Have you ever talked with some of the, the victims of these illegal folks? I yes, have yes. not done that, and but I'm sure I, I will at some point. At some point, but you know, I've interviewed a lot of people who have been murdered by Americans as well. So no, 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 Cherry, no, don't, 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 don't give me the red herring. Have some of these family members on and hear their side of the story. And I definitely will do that. And so let me just switch up before I give you guys my last question. Um, So this issue of border security and the term wall, all of this is becoming very politically charged. Do you think both parties are pretty much ignoring the problem with one side wanting a wall at all costs and the other side wanting to deny it for that same reason because this is all politics at this point when you look at the intersection between immigration and politics is uh what we often forget is a huge proponent of immigration reform was president george w bush who tried many times Mm -hmm. to get congress to pass uh immigration reform that's that's one way to look at it here's the other way when Trump came in, he had control of Congress. He went on a platform of, you know, anti-immigration, build the wall, yet nothing happened when, when he had the control of Congress. So the timing of it is confusing to me. And what's also confusing is that now it's become Democrats are for immigration, Republicans are against immigration, but that's not what it's traditionally been. And I don't know how we got to this point. We get caught up in the sort of political deal making and the concern is what's being traded for what and we lose sight again of the individuals. I mean, we're talking about the dreamers, young people who came here, not of their own choosing. They grew up here. They speak English primarily. They went to school. They served in the military, right, here in the United States. These are folks that by any measure in all the polls, they've always been supported that they should have status. And yet in the political process, because of the divisiveness of it, they can't pass legislation to benefit this group where the majority of Americans say that they should have a benefit and have status and a path to citizenship. And I think in most situations, when you look at people with temporary protected status, it's a status that about 200,000, 300,000 people have who have mostly been here about 20 years, have, again, bought homes, had children here, are contributing to the tax base, so on. Most people would say when you break it down by family, like, yes, this person is my neighbor, goes to my church, yeah. you know, is my coworker. This is somebody that I know and I've met and I want them to have a life. They're building a good life. And so when it gets to the, back to the individuals, I think most people find support the idea of trying to figure out an answer so that those folks can have status. And this has been a problem, unfortunately, for decades. And, Ameri- you know, no our lawmakers have been unable to nail it to the wall. Um, but, you know. You, you got to, Raynard, I got to ask you, man. I mean, President Donald Trump promised this on the campaign trail, 
And now, you know, you know, he he has egg on his face in a lot of ways because he shut down the government for over a month for nothing. And now, I mean, do you think this is simply a political point now for him? Well, only in D.C., do you get into a, a, a polemical debate about whether it's a wall, a barrier, or a structure? This is so silly on both sides. But yet, isn't it amazing that all these Democrats who are against the wall, that videotape of Schumer, Pelosi, Clyburn, all supported it as recently as a couple years ago? If they keep, and I'm making a prediction on your show, Cherry, if the Democrats keep going down this path, Donald Trump will be reelected next year. All right. Well, because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. The president has just a couple weeks left to close the deal with Congress on the issue of the border wall. What are your predictions? Will there be a compromise on border security? And if so, what will it look like? Trump will get the wall. They may call it barrier or whatever. He will get the wall and the funding. He will get some of the money for the wall and then we'll take drastic measures to declare a state of emergency and probably have the Army Corps of Engineers build the remainder of the wall that he wants. Last word. And when that emergency is declared, it'll be challenged in court, and then hopefully it'll be found that it's not a lawful declaration of an emergency situation. We will see what will happen. We got a couple weeks, and I'll check back. We we might have to um, check back with y'all to see who was right on this one. So I want to say thank you so much to Stephen Lauren. Thank you so much to Ricky Palladino. And finally, thank you so much to Raynard Jackson for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Next up, she's changing the perception of public defenders. Building that trust and building those bridges. The historic hire that's shaking up criminal justice. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is injustice in our criminal justice system. Well, one woman has been making headlines for her groundbreaking work fixing the system cog by cog, wheel by wheel. Kier Bradford-Gray is the chief defender of the Philadelphia Defender Association. She's the first African-American to serve in that role. And before that, she was the chief for the Montgomery County Defender Association, the first woman and first African-American to serve in that role. Kier, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me, Cherry. You're so excited. It makes me excited. (laughs) Well, this is exciting. This has been an exciting year for yes. criminal justice reform. Yes. And you have been busy for the past three and a half years or so since you've been in Philly. We have. We've been extremely busy. Yeah. And but let's back up a little bit for folks who don't know about the Defender Association. Explain what you all do. All right. So the Defender Association of Philadelphia is pretty much the public defender office. Mm-hmm. But we have so many facets and layers to our work. Yes. Um, we represent juveniles uh, who are charged with criminal cases. We represent adults charged with criminal cases. We represent people in the mental health system, and that is not just criminal, but that's also the civil division. We also represent kids in our child welfare system, which are considered civil cases. So we have so many different areas of our knowledge and practice. And there's a lot of lawyers in there and staff. There's over 220 lawyers. Yeah. So this is a pretty sizable law firm. It is. And you run the whole thing. Yes. Isn't that great? Go ahead, girl. (laughs) And so you've been really busy, but when you came in, what were the issues that you said, you know what, these are are the things I'm going to focus on? So one of the things I knew, what era we were in, we were in the criminal justice reform era. And I wholeheartedly believe that the defenders play an important role in criminal justice reform. However, some of our structures would not allow us to do those things that could make a difference and an impact. So what I first did was fixed our structure so that we can address issues of what brought people to the doorsteps of the criminal justice system in the first place early on in the process. So we had to take our social services unit and create what we call a pretrial unit so that we can work on developing types of outcomes or, or opportunities for remedial measures, meaning everyone that comes through this system doesn't necessarily need to come out with a brand of a criminal conviction. There are some things that we can do in the front end 
that we miss a lot of that opportunity the way we were structured. We would have social service workers working on cases once a person was found guilty and going to be sentenced. We missed a lot of opportunity before that um, to really kind of figure out why is this person here and is there another alternative, whether it's a diversion, whether it's some restorative justice action, meaning looking in the community for certain opportunities for them to step up and say, hey, we'd like this to happen or that to happen. That voice has been missing. So we've created not only that structural change, but also we expanded our mission to include real strategic community engagement so that we can come up with these solutions to problems using community input, resources, and intelligence. And then we created a policy division, which because we're a direct services organization, our policy is well informed by the practice. And we understand the type of policy that will actually make a practical difference rather than just a theoretical one. And so let's put this in layman's terms. When you talk about pretrial and diversionary programs, you talk about dealing with the problems that these people suffer. Absolutely. We're de- when we talk about pretrial, we coined a term called pre-entry. Yeah. Meaning, pre-entry. I right, love that word. Meaning that people don't have to enter and then do re-entry. Some people don't have to go to jail if we can address yes. some of their issues on the front end. And it's not just all the things you named with drug addiction and mental health. There are some actions, and I call them actions, that are an anomaly for people. This happened because I was involved in this event. It's an anomaly. It's not in my character. And I don't need to be branded with a lifetime conviction to learn my lesson or to never have it happen again. And so we're trying to make smarter decisions on that front end where we never did before. We kind of treated everyone the same. And you go through this system and you, you, you're ending up with a conviction that you don't necessarily need, which lessens your opportunity and is a direct correlation to poverty. Yeah. And so you have been working quietly behind the scenes. Yes. And for <laughs> for for a minute. Yes. And I know that everybody knows that, you know, uh, District Attorney Larry Krasner. I know you, you partner with him. But mm-hmm. you were doing this stuff before Krasner was even elected. Absolutely. Because when we got there, we were in the criminal justice reform era. There was yeah. no way that we would have ever even known that Larry Krasner would be coming on because it was during Seth Williams administration that I got there. Yeah. And so I figured if we were going to make criminal justice reform a reality, we've got to do it on our own. And we got to start making opportunities so for the rest of the system. Let's go down a laundry list. First and foremost, we started working on bail reform. Yes. Um, when I got to the Defender Association, I was put on a criminal justice reform committee by Council President Daryl Clark. So we started circulating around best practices and really getting this into a discussion, but also an understanding of what was happening to people and why it was something that we needed to change. And give us a a pinpoint this injustice that was happening with regard to bail. People were sitting in jail on very low-level amounts of bail for months, only then to be let out for if they pled guilty because they needed their freedom, they've gotten probation because their charge never would have required jail time. There were people that were sitting in jail only to discover they weren't the person that actually committed the crime. So they were found not guilty. There are people sitting in jail only for their cases to be dismissed because someone never showed up for court. So people were serving sentences, losing housing, losing jobs, losing public welfare benefits, losing children especially. But think about this. If I go to jail for something I did not do, I'm much more desperate and much more likely to do something wrong than if you would have left me or let me be able to have my freedom and stay with what little supports that I had so that I am not a detriment to pu- public safety. We're talking about people who are poor. Literally, if you had money, you wouldn't even be in prison. Right. It's not a deterrent to anything. It's a matter of means, meaning people who didn't have equal means to, you know, of economic means were in really dire situations as it related to our criminal justice system. And it was making headlines. Every time yes. I turned around, the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund was doing bailouts. We worked on, with communities. And you were out there yes. <laughs> with so them. Yeah. Think about it. I think things changed by the court of public opinion sometimes, yeah. right? And societal uh, views on how mm-hmm. these things should go. That's what we knew we had to do. And we had to really work with community to un- not only understand the problem, but come up with solutions. So then there were creations of bail funds. We Bailing reached out, people out. Yes. We reached out to the Players Coalition, athletes who had a platform and a voice and visibility that could lend their, I guess, stardom and that platform to this effort and make it seem like this was nothing that was going to impede our ability to be safe in our community. Also learning what that system was and the opportunities they had to help us. So 
I think that what was happening in Philadelphia was a really strategic effort. We have been out there in the communities, not only just talking about the problems, but asking people to join us. We right now are creating this pre-entry coalition. Yes. We're bringing forth all these service providers, these program providers that once only thought the only way to service people is on re-entry once they get out of jail to help them understand the opportunities for real, meaningful, sustainable um, treatment approaches to people on the front end. It actually has been working better for uh, reducing recidivism. It's been a tremendous transformation in how we look at One of the big bail issues was that if you were found not guilty, they still kept your bail. Yes, they kept a percentage. They kept a percentage of your bail, even if you proved yourself innocent. And I was interested in bringing that out at a town hall that we were invited to around cash bail by Councilman Kenyatta Johnson and State Rep. Joanna McClinton. And so sometimes you just automatically think people know this stuff. And so when I said it, the whole audience roared like, what? Explain the problem. So the problem is if you were arrested, no one knows if you did it or not. And you post bail to get out. Um, When it's determined that you didn't do it legally, whatever you want to call it, you're not guilty. The city still kept 30 percent of the bail that you posted. So they only gave you back 70 percent of that money. And you didn't even do it. Right. And you were forced into this system. I didn't ask to be in this system. Had to hire lawyers, all this. It cost you a lot of money to, be, to prove yourself innocent. Think about not just the, the, the emotional stress. Yeah. Sometimes if people had been in before they can get up the money to get out, they might have lost a job. They might have now been backed up on bills. I mean, these are real life things that most people don't plan for when you're just taken off the street. We, you mentioned your pre-entry but the participatory hubs, I heard yes. testimony. I got to come to Loving City Hall. Those. You were on this committee looking all official and everything. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, and it was like people who were in the community testifying about how these wraparound services uh, and the supports that you talked about pre-entry mm-hmm. were really changing lives. And you did it. It's a pilot program, but it looks like it's going to. It's going to grow. It should be here to stay. What the purpose of participatory defense hubs is to not just service people, but to empower people, to teach them about this process that they're about to go through, because it's a foreign world. When people get into the court system, they don't know. It's really left for the people with legal degrees uh, and the people that are working in those systems to really fully understand it. And it's been complicated for so long that people make wrong decisions. They have basic assumptions that are incorrect and they don't do things that they could do to make those hearings and their outcomes go better. Yeah. They don't even know how to talk to the judge and and your folks. Right. Teach them how to do all this. Right. They. So what we do is we train hubs on our systems process. We um, like kind of break out the dictionary for what each hearing means and what people can do to make each hearing go better. It's been really useful for public defenders, especially when we need more intelligent resources from the communities that that know what's going on. Help me help you. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You get your ear to the ground. I can only be as good as you can give me the Mm -hmm. information and ammunition Mm -hmm. to be your best advocate. Yes. And now we have like an army of folks because where our client used to be there alone and isolated and scared and not really knowing what to say. You turn around and you have an army of people that a judge can look at and say, hey, can you give me uh, a program that you have that you that I can uh, help this person uh, get into? That has been working. Judges have been taken to it because they have more options available to them. And people are stepping up and saying, Judge, this is not the problem. This person just needs X. So community is expressing their own level for tolerance and their own understanding of what they want in their community, how they want law enforcement to behave in their community, and how they want what they want from their justice system to deal with the real crime and let the social issues be handled by the social practitioners. Yeah, the folks who are actually living um, amongst the folks. Yeah. So I just, I just, I'm looking forward to seeing this idea expand. Yes. And I have to say, like, uh, I talked to folks on the street here. <laughs> And they were like, you know, you like are upsetting some of these paid lawyers because folks oh. are like, you know, I'd rather keep I'm going to work with the, my defender. Right. And, and usually, you know, when you talk about public defenders, there's this air of, you know, they're not that great. Like I if know. you can afford to pay for somebody, you should. Otherwise, you're going to get screwed. But you literally have people in some high profile cases and I won't put their business out there who felt 
more comfortable with you than they did with private attorneys. Then we're doing something right because that's what we're supposed to be, right? People who can't afford a lawyer should not have to mortgage off houses or do every other unimaginable thing to try to get good representation. So if we're doing that, our city pays for it. It is their constitutional right to have competent lawyers and that we're getting our trust in there. And the participatory defense hubs have been really instrumental in building that trust and building those bridges. But I think us just becoming more visible in the community really shows them that we are real lawyers with real law degrees, come from some of the most uh, amazing law schools all around, even in our hometown here in Philadelphia. And we dedicate our life to this because we want to. Yeah. So how's your relationship with Larry Krasner? Larry, I mean, he's very good at having the press conference and getting the the post. Yeah. (laughs) You don't you don't do that as much, but yet you're doing so much work. How's your relationship with him? So our relationship is good insofar as that we are very much partners. We have to be partners in this. No one entity can do this alone. Uh, Larry has a lane. Um, He gets his information from law enforcement. And it's up to us to add a lot more information so that good decisions can be made. That can only happen by two people or two organizations working together. And since the defenders represent over 70 percent of the people in the justice system, um, it is really important that we work together together. To make sure big picture wise, we're looking at long term goals and not just short term effects. And long term goals are can we reduce our system by kind of getting rid of the things that we never need, never needed to come in here? How do we do that? What mechanisms do we use? How do we identify that? And then use our system for what it was supposed to be designed for. And that is really dealing with things that threaten public safety. Yeah. Shifting gears and focusing right. on what needs to be focused on. And so, I read that you had actually been tapped to run for DA. I I was. And at that time, I had just got to the Defender Association. It was a historic appointment, of course, first African-American female running the Defender Association. I mean, the Defender Association is a big deal, and it's a big deal to me. Yeah. And it was about nine months into my (laughs) (laughs) administration, and I uh, got called to run for DA. And all of these, this buzz was going around. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know where my value to this work is going to be, to this reform effort. I know what I'm doing. I know what I want to do. And I'm not done yet. So I'm not going to leave my post because whoever's on that other side is going to need me to do what I'm doing in order for us to really make a big impact on our system. When would you say, you know what, okay, like I'm done. I did what I came to do. When we really reform our pretrial system, when we get rid of cash bail and have very reasonable, viable alternatives to deal with things, when we reform our probation and parole system, I can sit back and smile and say, you know what, I can do this for however long or, you know, if opportunity comes along, I can go now. To Kiera Bradford Gray, I mean, she is the chief of the Philadelphia Defender Association. You know, I look forward to seeing what happens. Well, we'll keep you informed. All right. Thanks for being (laughs) on Flashpoint. Thank you. Next up, they were Invisible Warriors. They were the largest group of black women who contributed to the war. Honoring the Rosie the Riveters that didn't get put on the posters during World War II. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. We all know the image of the World War II icon Rosie the Riveter, the war effort symbol calling women out of the home and into jobs held exclusively by men for decades. We recall her red bandana and bicep flexi pose, strong and capable. We also recall that there was only one depiction of Rosie. She was a white woman, well, there to represent the array of women who took up her calls. Now here to tell us about their event honoring Black Rosie the Riveters is the president of the Basil and Becky Educational Foundation, Gregory Cook. Welcome to Flashpoint. Hi, thank you for having me. So they had Black Rosie the Riveters. Go figure. During World War II, there were actually 600,000 African-American women who were Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter was not just uh, women who worked in factories, but it was also uh, women who went into um, administrative, secretarial, clerical positions for the first time. And you have to remember that prior to the war, many of the jobs that were normally associated with women were actually held by men, white males. So clerk, typist, a lot of those jobs, particularly in the federal government, were held by by white males. And so when the war came, obviously those men went off to war. 
and they had to be filled by women. And this is how African-American women, for example, it was the first time that they had gone into administrative clerical positions in, in, in very large numbers. Yeah, and it was life-changing for these women. Yes, it was. Prior to uh, World War II, more than 80 percent of African-American women were either sharecroppers or domestics. And that was pretty much all that most of them could do. Uh, because of the war and the, the uh, need for labor, uh, all of that changed for these women. And so you had great migrations of African-American women, especially out of the South. They migrated north, northeast, and to the west for government jobs in Washington, D.C. in particular, but also in other parts of the country for manufacturing positions, uh, building tanks, airplanes, ships, etc. And once you take the genie out the bottle, you can't put her back in. Right. That's true. Although, you know, things did change a lot for these women, but right after the war, many of these women uh, essentially were forced to go back into domestic service because that was all that was available to them. But they did not return south to be sharecroppers. And so they they held on, and eventually things did slowly begin to change after the war. So, you know, black women moved into retail and and other areas after the war. So, uh, Gregory, what made you fascinated about this? It's a very long story, but the short version is my mother was a Rosie. When I was a a kid, my mother used to tell me this story. It's really the only thing I know about her World War II experience. And she rode on her suitcase from Norfolk, Virginia to Washington, D.C. to get her very first job. She was 18 years old. It was 1943. And so she went to Washington to get a job as a clerk typist in the U.S. Patent Office. And that story stuck with me, but I didn't have any context for it. I didn't really ask her follow-up questions. And as a result of some other experiences I had doing research and doing another film, Chocolate Soldiers from the USA, about African Americans in Great Britain during the war, I stumbled upon the Rosies. And, and they were the largest group of black women who contributed to the war. Wow. Wow. And that's amazing. And so um, there's actually some black rosies in the Philly area. Yes, there are. I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, some of them. One, Miss Ruth Wilson, she will be 97 this year. She worked at, in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. She helped build the aircraft carrier USS Valley Forge. Former Camden Mayor Gwen Faison came up from, from North Carolina during the war and worked at RCA making electronic components. Miss Faison was also had an interesting career after the war because she was either, I think, the second or first black woman to advertise things on television in the 1950s. The first might have been Lena Horne, but because she worked at RCA during the 1950s, she was actually on TV selling TVs and radios. Wow, and a lot of this is in your film. Yes. Uh, the name of the film is called Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II. Yeah, and why were they invisible? Well, they were invisible because during the war, uh, all of the attention was, was geared overwhelmingly toward white women. That's why we have that image of the white woman, the white Rosie flexing her bicep. Uh, black women were actually the last hired. Most black women came into the war in 1944, which was the last full year of the war. Also, one of the issues that went with that, uh, during that was a period of Jim Crow and segregation in America. So if you wanted to see what was going on in the war, what was going on overseas, you had to go to the theater to see that, to see the newsreels. And so they just did not shoot a lot of film of black women working in factories. There's a little bit, but not a lot. Wow. So they're kind of literally invisible, invisible from that part of history. Exactly. Was it a challenge getting the information you needed about the black women who were? Yeah, yes. In, in some ways, every Rosie I've ever met except one, I had to talk into participating in the film and I had to give them a history lesson because none of them thought they had done anything historically significant. And I had to put their their jobs in, in, in the context of how they helped America. And so many of them still don't see it as a big deal, but they have a better understanding of their, of their contributions to America now than they did before. And that was the great challenge to convince these women, yes, you did something historically significant. Yes, you did things that helped change the fortunes of African-American women. Because today, all African-American women, particularly those in non-traditional positions, stand on their shoulders. 
race was always a factor in in every aspect of their lives. And so in many cases, first of all, the women, black or white, were not paid as much as the men who had had the jobs before them. But then when you get into situations where you're not in a union shop, black women generally had the most dangerous jobs and they they were paid less. And so these women did this uh while fighting segregation, Jim Crow, yeah. etc., the Pittsburgh Courier in 1942 uh, began a program called the Double V Program, and the purpose of that was to say we're fighting for democracy at home and against fascism overseas. So all black people in the military and civilian life yeah. had to fight that that dual battle during the war. So race was a factor. A couple of the women were injured during the war. And one of them is still suffering from health problems today, according to her. Wow. And yeah, she made she made gunpowder in Alabama. Wow. I know a lot of our World War II veterans are dying mm-hmm. off. Right. Uh, a lot of our Rosie Derivators are in their 90s now. Right. And so you are going to be celebrating them. Yes. On February 10th, I will have the screening of my film, Invisible Warriors, African-American Women of World War II. We at the Marriott Hotel in Philadelphia will be giving awards. It's an awards luncheon. There'll be eight African-American Rosies there, which is probably the only and largest gathering of African-American Rosies since the end of World War II. Mayor Kenny will also be making uh, an appearance and giving a presentation. And we also have proclamations from Vincent Hughes, Blondell Reynolds Brown, and from Dwight Evans. Wonderful. The event has actually been sold out since July. Wow. Yeah. Are you serious? Yes. And uh, it, it actually sold out before I officially started advertising. <laughs> so we're expecting about 173 people. Wow. Well, congratulations. Where Thank can you. people find out? more about your film and about the works that you're doing uh, to uplift these Black Rosie Derivators. One for the film is called uh, InvisibleWarriorsFilm.com, and the other one is uh, BBEEF.org. And if you go there, you can get information about the film. You can get information about the Basil and Becky Educational Foundation. This event is actually our coming out party so to speak. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you so much to Gregory Cook. He is the president of the Basil and Becky Educational Foundation and filmmaker as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Greg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll walk you through the flames. As English astrologer Sir Isaac Newton once said, We build too many walls and not enough bridges. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.